0: Good morning. It's good to be here together today, isn't it? Amen. Yes. Thankful to be here. Yes. Good. It is a blessing and a privilege and a gift to be here together on this day for this time. Right here, right now, isn't it? We are fortunate. There are many who are not as fortunate. We think even of those in our own country today, out west or up north, who have been displaced from their homes their churches um, because of the wildfires. And so our thoughts and our prayers are with them today. We are fortunate to be here together and we don't take this for granted, do we? No, we don't. Have you had a good week? Yes, good, I'm glad to hear that. I hope you're able to enjoy the last couple of weeks of summer. It's coming to an end. I've noticed the leaves changing color, leaves on the ground. There was one day this week. What day was that? Friday, where it felt like fall. I walked the dog and I had to put on a coat and jeans and boots. And it was cold that day. It was like, okay, fall is just around the corner. Now, there is. So much to look forward to in the fall, especially around here. We're in planning mode and we're excited for the fall. You excited? Yes, good, love to hear it. And, and it's important to recognize the gift of today right now and make the most of today, right? Yes. This is something I find myself telling my kids. You know how kids are always wanting to be older than they are? (laughs) You laugh because you know. And they actually argue among their friends about who's older. And it doesn't matter if it's two weeks or two days, whoever is oldest, they are just, they are the ones. They are the bee's knees, they are the best because they're that much older. And so with my girls, they'll say things to me like, I can't wait to just go to the park by myself. Or I can't wait to be a teenager and get my license. I can't wait to get married and have a baby. Or I can't wait to go back to school. No, <laughs> they don't say that at all. That has never, never came out of their mouths. Um, but there, there's a whole list of things that they're just excited for and anticipating for for the future. Now, there's something about this kind of anticipation where they're just kind of wishing their time away. You know what I mean? They're kind of wishing their time away and just so focused on, you know, all that is to come that it takes away from the present. So we're landing in Psalm 73 in our series today. Thank you, Sandra, for reading that for us and giving us that context there. That was good because I decided not to talk about any of that. So that works out lovely. Thank you. As I reflected on this psalm this week, I was struck by the contrast in it. And not just the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. That's clearly laid out for us. um, But the contrast in the writer's thoughts. How he first finds himself in one space, this envious, angry, bitter space, doubtful space, but ends up landing in this secure, trusting, faith-filled, hopeful space. So keep this in mind. So while there is much to look forward to in the future for all of us, there may be much to worry about or be concerned about or feel overwhelmed about. There is something to be said for being in the present, for taking stock of the moment, for making the most of today, for shaping, transforming even, just the very space we find ourselves in. And I think we'll see that here as we look closely at this psalm together. The writer attributed to this psalm is Asaph, who was one of three leaders of David's Levitical choirs, and he opens the psalm with this statement. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Can you hear the squeaking? All right. We... I was trying. I was just assuming you didn't hear it. All right. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We're good. Thank you. Okay. Now that's out of the way. Let me say that again. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What do you make of the word surely here? Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What if I leave that word out? God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Different, right? It's different. I mean, surely, God is good. He has to be. Question mark? Can you see just the doubt in this statement through this tiny little word here? It's not just an insignificant word. And as we continue to read this psalm, the doubt indicated by this word, surely, um, becomes quite obvious. We go through this psalm and we can see how the writer's experiences on a day-to-day basis causes him to doubt the goodness of God. But we don't ever doubt that, do we? Surely we don't doubt the goodness of God. <laughs> so this opening statement is what the writer knows to be true and believes and hopes for. It is an expression of his theological conviction despite the doubt caused by his present experience. So apart from this word, surely. This is a statement of faith that all those in the Old Testament would hold as truth. It would be something they would accept and know and trust and believe in. It's truth. And this would have been a foundational liturgical statement in the worshiping community. God is good to his people. He is good to those who genuinely walk in his ways. As a matter of fact, this opening statement reflects The same theology as Psalm 1. Psalm 1 and Psalm 73 share the same simple world view. Those who walk in the ways of God reap blessings. On the flip side, as we eventually see in Psalm 73, when people reject God and his ways, they rob themselves of God's blessings and that will lead them to judgment and punishment. God is good to those who are pure in heart, who walk in his ways. Now, what follows this statement is just the unraveling of doubt that the writer shares with us. And it's really confession, friends. We've been talking about confession the last couple of weeks, right? And that's, that's what's happening here in this psalm. This is Asaph confessing right here with us. A personal crisis of faith. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Remember, the reality of the world around him doesn't seem to match Asaph's theology and what he knows to be true of God. Those who don't choose God, they're the ones who have everything, while those who choose God, they're the ones suffering. And so this is troubling, troubling, for Asaph. And because he's so fixated on what he perceives is happening in the world around him, he nearly loses his faith over it. And he lays it out this way for us. He's just lamenting. He's complaining. This is my paraphrase of his confession. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the wicked prosper. They're healthy. They are strong, they don't struggle, they're not burdened like the rest of us, their hearts are hard, their minds are evil, they are filled with pride, they're violent, they have more than their heart's desires, they don't speak or live in a way that reflects the glory and majesty of God, they are hypocritical, they are self-righteous, selfish, and self-serving, they threaten to oppress others. I was envious of all this how is it the wicked seem to prosper while the godly suffer and by wicked and godly we're really talking about those who follow god and choose god and those who reject god so not necessarily disney villain characteristics here but wicked in that they are living for the world profiting at the expense of others, not loving God, not loving others. The godly seek to live for God and love others. The wicked live for the world and they live for themselves. And really, there's no middle ground. We're either with God or we're against him. So how is it the wicked seem to prosper while the godly suffer? And so again, what Asaph sees happening all around him does not match what he knows to be true of God. He's so focused on what he sees going on around him. And yes, it can be reality, but the attitude and perspective he takes, it affects and shapes the space he's in. I envied the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied the arrogant. Now I discovered this week that this statement and its original translation would have been received at the time like a theological hand grenade. In its original translation, what the writer actually says is that he envied the arrogant when he saw the shalom of the wicked. So imagine how the first hearers would have received this. How would they have responded to that? Is this guy nuts? Does he know what he's saying? We know shalom in the Old Testament is this powerful holistic blessing of God for God's people. Shalom was a gift and a privilege for all those who just genuinely sought after God, who wanted to follow him, who pursued him, who drew near to God. Shalom was a gift for God's people. And Asaph is saying here that those who reject God and oppress the weak are the ones experiencing his shalom. What? Does that make sense? Asaph sees the wicked as being trouble-free and immune to the struggles of life that are just so common to everyone else. Do you think these wicked people he speaks of would describe their lives in the same way as Asaph sees it? These verses, descriptions here that Asaph shares, they are really an indication of his state of mind, what he's observing from a distance. They are not necessarily an accurate Portrayal of reality for the wicked. And you know, from a human perspective, and Asaph was human, like the rest of us, it can be so easy to envy what others have. It can be easy to envy those who have more than us. Can it? Our friends, nice car, nice homes, great job. Other people's wealth or opportunities or means to travel can be so easy in our humanity to envy what others have. Moving on, verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Little more doubt coming through. He believes God is good, but he knows that he's suffering. He believes one thing, but his experience is something different. In other words, he's saying, I have kept my heart pure for nothing. Seeing as how your blessing goes to the impure, the proud, the arrogant, the violent. I've kept my heart pure and I'm the one suffering while those who want nothing to do with you, God, have everything they could ever want and more. And we land in verse 15. And this is a turning point. This is, as Fred would say, the TSN turning point right here. Asaph moves from lament, from complaining to absolute praise, just absolute praise. So how, How does this happen? How does this happen? Asaph realizes that his perspective is off. It's skewed. And so he comes to the conclusion and says in verse 15, this is the new living translation. This time, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. If I had said this out loud to others, I would have betrayed you and your people, God. He continues in verse 16. I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. The NIV translation says it this way. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. It was discouraging and bringing me down inside. It's heavy. And what happens next? Verse 17 says this, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. And so what changed for Asaph? He goes into the sanctuary of the Lord, and his fixation on this perceived injustice of the godly and the shalom of the wicked, he brings it before God, and when he does that, what happens? Things change, right? Things change. He feels resolution from this internal struggle he has going on from the tension. Temp- the tension, His perception changes, not the circumstances around him. His perception is what changes. And as he spends time with God in his sanctuary, he sees things from an eternal, more divine perspective. He understands how the wicked, while it may seem like it now, they're not really prospering because there's coming a day where God will rule justly and his blessing is not what's in store for the ungodly. Ultimately, they will not prosper. And so all this doubt, this crisis of faith that Asaph was having, it gets resolved by taking a moment and bringing it before the Lord. Not by continually sputtering about it or by suppressing it. Doesn't get resolved through the buildup of bitterness and resentment. When those walls get built up, they can be hard to tear down. We often don't even realize We build those walls. They get built without us noticing. Asaph gets resolved by spending time with God. We can't say for sure if Asaph went into the physical temple and met with God there or if he experienced God somewhere else. Regardless, that's insignificant. We can encounter and experience God's presence Anywhere And so wherever it was that Asaph met with God, it makes a huge difference. It changes his outlook and transforms this envious, doubtful, angry space that he's in into this space of just praise and thankfulness. He begins to see things from God's perspectives and things change inwardly. For him, he realizes how he felt and the attitude he had before was wrong. Verse 21 Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Continuing on with the rest of the psalm here, verse 23 to 28. This is a new living translation this time, and we see the shift so clearly now. Yet, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, But. For you, destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. So after spending this time with God, his faith is restored. And the space he's in emotionally, physically, spiritually, is changed through spending time with God. Have you ever experienced anything like this in your own faith journey? (laughs) Yes. Yes. No. Yes. I don't know. Maybe just maybe where you've been angry or um, devastated or discouraged or doubting. And then you just take a moment. You just take some time to pray about it and afterwards you find some peace you find some hope I hope this has been your experience I hope that this has been your experience I know that when I'm bothered by something I can't I can't even focus on anything else I have to go to my room close the door and pray about it and get the resolve that I need from spending that time with God before I can do anything else. I just can't, my soul cannot carry on until I create that space and make that time to just lay it at the Lord's feet. That's where resolution comes from through spending time with God in prayer. That's when he moves and works in our hearts. When we come to him, our inner struggles can find resolve through prayer. So a couple of things to reflect on here together this morning. This psalm it serves as affirmation for those who love God and choose to follow him. And it's a warning for those who don't love God, for those who live for themselves and treat others unjustly. There is a final destiny for everyone. And Asaph wants all who will hear this psalm to know that. This is what Jesus teaches us all throughout the Gospels. Right? I immediately think of when Jesus explains the parable of the weeds in Matthew 6. Jesus describes here the separation of the righteous and the wicked, those who follow God and choose Jesus and those who don't. Scripture teaches us that we have an eternal destiny and it will be determined by the choices we make in life here and now. Be determined by our choosing Jesus or our not choosing Jesus. One other thing I'd like us to consider this morning, I just want to point out the honesty in this psalm. Asaph writes, prepares this with honesty. Are we really honest with our emotions when we come before God in prayer? Are we really honest about how we're feeling when we take time and pray to God? We learn from the psalm that Asaph previously didn't share how he felt out loud with the community of faith, right? He would have been a traitor, his words. But we can safely assume when he met with God, he told him exactly how he felt. Exactly how he felt. His honesty before God was absolutely essential to the inner transformation that took place for him. If Asaph wasn't honest with God, I don't think we'd see the transformation. I don't think we'd see it. You know what that says to me? Oh, what God can do with our honesty. Oh, what God can do with our honesty. You know, what we see and learn from the psalmists is how they are never reluctant to share their grief or their sense of disappointment with God. In their prayers, they openly voice their doubts with God. They're honest. They are honest. I want us to see this as a challenge this morning because I know that it's not always comfortable to be open and honest in our Christian lives. In a commentary I have on the Psalms, it says this about Psalm 73. Just listen to this. In the contemporary church in the Western world, there is an unwritten pressure placed upon Christians that assumes we are always fine. In fact, if we are not fine, there must be something seriously wrong with our faith. This is not the attitude of the Bible. The scriptures meet with us in all our humanity, all of our humanity, good and bad, strong and weak, soaring with faith and racked with doubt. In the Bible, we find language that is appropriate to our every situation and laments like Asaph's are appropriate to those days when we ourselves are filled with doubts and uncertainties. It is important that we today make these prayers our own when they reflect our heart and mind and view of life. We see it all throughout the Bible, inner restoration, healing is found through honesty with God. It's what we learn here today when we voice how we feel with him and he knows already, he's fully aware of our emotions. There is no point in politely lying to God in our prayers. There is no point. He is fully aware of our emotions. And when we voice how we are genuinely feeling with him, that's where healing begins. That's where those walls of doubt or bitterness and resentment or pride start to crumble. And we realize that it is more oppressive to ourselves to harbor these feelings and to keep them inside than it is to lay them at the feet of God and allow him to transform the space we're in. We're getting to the end. And as we do, I want us all to know this, resolution for us today is found where? <laughs> Come on, where is resolution found for us today? <laughs> there was lots of different answers. I was expecting in Jesus, but and yes, and yes, and and yes. But resolution for us today is found in Jesus Christ, God's Son, through honesty with Jesus Christ, God's Son. When we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we spend time with God in prayer through Jesus the Son, we experience the resolution we need in life. And so with our brokenness, our unforgiveness, our bitterness, our doubt, our pride, we lay it all at the feet of Jesus, knowing, knowing that he takes it. And he can break us free from all of it, all of it through the cleansing, restoring work of his spirit moving in our lives. Amen? Amen. I wanted to share this with you from my commentary on the Psalms. It says this, We have been given blessing after blessing, good gift after good gift, promise after promise, and encouragement after encouragement in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must never forget the riches we have as the people of God. Friendship with the creator, eternal security guaranteed, meaning and purpose in life. Kinship with a family that transcends every barrier of race and nationality. Look around, friends. We are a gift to each other. We are a beautiful gift to each other. The promise of divine protection, guidance, provision, and help, and so much more besides. Just as Asaph came to realize that it is not worldly wealth which brings true richness, so we too must remember the great wealth we have as children of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son as we are strengthened through the Spirit. Meeting with God openly and honestly, Asaph's crisis was resolved. His doubt in God was transformed into confidence in God. The envy and bitterness that just plagued his heart and soul, the space that he was in was changed completely. Asaph came to a new understanding of God and was able to praise him more deeply and more fully. We see the journey. We can relate on some level to the struggle. We see the result of honesty before God, healing, peace, confidence, a deeper, more mature, grounded faith. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're gonna worship together. We're gonna sing in Christ alone. And this is our psalm in response to Psalm 73 this morning. Right? We let this be our psalm in response to Psalm 73 this morning. In Christ alone my hope is found, not surely in Christ alone my hope is found. But in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, the solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Can we sing this with confidence? And faith and assurance that God is good and he is with us, drought, storm. I will still praise him. I will still trust. He makes me strong. He loves me. He will make a way for me. I choose to be in his hands. He controls my destiny. I choose to be in his hands no matter what. Why? Because the Lord is good to all who follow him.